Our scripture reading this morning is found on page 619 in the Bibles that are there under the chairs in front of you. And uh, we say this every week. If you don't have a Bible, then take the one that's there in front of you. That is our gift to you. We want you to have that. Um, And so it's yours. Uh, But again, our scripture reading begins at the very bottom there, page 619. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19. And this is what Paul tells us. He says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to not need to go out into the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is God's word. Let's let's pray. Father, we uh, Lord, we come to you, uh, a people in desperate need uh, to hear from you, uh, not from men, uh, not from even our own hearts, which your word tells us are, are easily deceived. Father, but we need to hear your words from your mouth and we need your spirit uh, to do those things, to take your word and to apply it to our hearts. And so, Father, I would just ask that your spirit would be here among us at work. We're taking the words of JP, Lord, and bringing great clarity, uh, Lord, bringing out uh, the truth that is there within, Lord, and that you would press it in deep into our hearts, that we would be made new and we would think your thoughts and we would live a life that is pleasing and honoring to you. And so, Lord, let anything that is not of you this morning, I pray that it would just be blown away like the chaff in the wind. And Lord, let every word that is from you sink deep. And Lord, we pray that you would take great joy and great delight in the things that we say and do this morning in your name. Amen. This hurts me more than it hurts you. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that, maybe? I remember my dad saying that to me a few times when I was younger. 
uh, and for good reason. It was, it was for good reason, and there was times when uh, I was being corrected for something. I don't know that I've ever actually used that, those exact words with my children, but I've certainly felt that quite a bit, where I go, uh, you, uh, you see them do something that has to be addressed, and you go, ah, oh, and sometimes you, there's tears, and there's, oh, and you think, ah, oh, maybe just let it slide, but you go, no, this really needs to be addressed, and and so uh, I certainly know that sentiment in my heart, even with my own children and my own family. And I was thinking about that this, this week. As, as you're reading through 1 Corinthians, you can almost hear Paul saying those words. In fact, where we were last week in chapter 4, we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, this letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And in, in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved Children, and you can almost hear him saying, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I, I want you to see this and see it clearly. And so as we move into chapter five this week, that's really where we're going to spend our time in first Corinthians chapter five. That's certainly the case. Paul's really getting into some hard issues that are going on in the church. And he's trying to address these things. And he says some things that I'll be quite honest, be real frank with you. As you read them, you go, whoa, that sounds pretty, pretty rough. Maybe as Chris read this passage to you just now, maybe that was coming to mind and you were even thinking some of those things. And so what we're looking at today in chapter five and what we're really going to focus in on is this idea of of sin that is ongoing within the church. People that are claiming to be Christians, that are claiming to follow Jesus, and yet their lives don't back that up. And so Paul has some pretty strong words about what's to be done about that and the way we're to look at it to see uh, the way we're to address blatant and clear sin. Uh, We'd say unrepentant sin. Repentance is turning from what we're doing and turning and going the other way. And in this case, they're not. They're just walking in their sin. And so we're going to look at this morning how we address that and how Paul tells us to address that within the church and why that's important. But before we do, let's pray, and then we're going to look at this chapter 5 together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, and it is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it does uh, cut us, and it cuts us deeply sometimes. And we pray this morning as we come to this text that can easily be misunderstood and, and has some very hard things to say, I pray that your spirit would show us exactly what you want us to hear and to see and to apply today. We pray that you would move freely in this place and, and enlighten our hearts, illuminate our minds to understand your word this morning through your spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so really what we're talking about is, is dealing with sin within the church and, and how that looks and, and how that goes. And so this morning I'm going to ask just three questions. I, I often say this. We often do three questions. There's an outline in the back of your bulletin that has those on there. If that helps you in the way you think, you can follow along there. But the questions we're asking are first, what are we to do in light of this ongoing sin? What are we to do as the, the, the body of believers? Second, why are we to do it? And then third, what is the intended outcome? What are we going for? So what are we to do? Why are we to do it? And then what's the intended outcome? And so first, what are we to do? Let's just set the scene here. Chris just read it for us, but look at verse one, just to get the idea of what Paul is, is talking about and what he's going towards in this unrepentant ongoing sin. And you see it in verse one. He says, it's reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. 
And so Paul comes to them. And if you remember last week where we were, we were talking about how there's such this arrogance, this, this air of puffed up, how sticking their chest out and look at how good we're doing. And we've got it all figured out and all these things. And we were talking about that last week and some of the things that lead to that. And then Paul brings back, comes back to that and says, you're arrogant. And then he says, you're, you're arrogant. And not only are you arrogant within the church, there's sexual immorality. There's sexual relations outside of marriage, outside of the way that God's commanded us. And he said, this is just going on in the church. And he takes it a step further and he says, not only is it going on in the church, he said, it's of a kind that even those people that don't even pretend to be religious would say it's wrong. And what he says is a man is sleeping with his stepmother. It's pretty straightforward, right? And that's, that's what he says. And he says, and, and yet you're walking around acting like you've got everything together. And he says, you, you, you're acting arrogant. Shouldn't you be cut to the heart? Shouldn't you be mourning? And so Paul brings that out, and that's what he's talking about. He's talking about someone who's claiming in the church to be a Christian, and then they're doing these things. And he's saying, this has to be addressed. And so that, that comes to our question of what are we to do in light of blatant sin that goes directly against what God tells us to do with someone who's claiming to be a Christian. And he tells you in verse 2, he says real clearly, he says, uh, are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? And then he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And so he says, you're to remove them from the membership of the church. You're to remove them from it. And you go, well, that seems pretty harsh, right? That you, you hear that and you kind of, your mind goes a lot of places or it could, as I was thinking about this this week, you know, he, he's in sin. He's claiming to be a Christian, but then he's walking into sin. You go, so he's to be removed. That seems kind of quick to to jump to that. You know what, what we're not saying, just so we're clear, it doesn't mean you become a Christian and then you walk perfectly the rest of your life. And the first time you ever sin that you're removed from the church, that's not what we're saying. It's not that we have a work day here and we're outside and you're hammering and you slip and you hit your thumb and a profanity slips out. and Somebody runs up and goes, you're out of here. That's it. You're done. You can't be in the church anymore, because if that was the case, this would be an empty room right now. Including me, including all of us, it'd just be sitting here empty. That's the way it would look. And so that's not what we're talking about. But what you see, and you see it clearly, if you look closely at verse 1, what we're talking about is an ongoing thing. Look at the way he, he writes it. He says, actually, it is reported that there is present tense, is sexual immorality among you. And then he says, for a man has, again, present, present tense, his father's <laughs> wife. He says, this is ongoing. He's still doing it. He's not repenting. He's he's walking this. He's claiming to be a Christian. And yet he's doing these things that are go clearly against what God's word tells us and the way God directs us to live. And so it's an ongoing thing that we're talking about. And so when you see that, uh, it sheds some light on the steps that we're to take. Paul doesn't lay all of it out here in first Corinthians five. But when we take the whole of scripture, we see that there's steps to take. When a brother or sister in Christ is walking and they're claiming to be a Christian, but yet they're walking in certain things like this, continuing in their sin. We go to Matthew 18 to see that. And you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 18, Jesus addresses this very thing. It's in Matthew 18, verse 15 to 20. You can read that later if you'd like. But what Jesus says is there's steps you take when you find out someone is walking in their sin. And he says, what you do is you go to the person. If a friend of yours and you know, and if it's in this case, your friend is sleeping with his stepmother and he's claiming to be a Christian, you go to him and you say, you can't do that. And you, you confront him with it and you tell him and you show him God's word and you show him what it teaches us and what it says and the way we're to live. 
And it says if he, he rejects you and he says, I don't really care what you say, well, then it's, you kick him out. No, actually not. There's another step to it. Jesus says if he doesn't listen to you, go get two or three friends and go with them. Go together and go with them and confront them again. And say you need to repent. You need to stop of this and turn from your sin. And he says you're to go together. Right? And then it says, you know, if he repents, then great, and you welcome him in, and you walk with him. There'll be some things that need to be done to repair some of the things that have been broken from our sin. That's with all of us, and we need accountability if that's the case. But he says, if he still resists, even when you take two or three with you, he says, then there's another step. You're not done yet. Then you take him to the church. He says, you take him before the church, and you say, and you tell, and everybody kind of says the same thing to him. Hey, you can't do this. That's not what it looks like to follow Christ. And if he still repents, then he says you remove him. Right? You, you, you take him from the church. And so those are the steps. And that's really what we're talking about and what Paul's talking about. This is an ongoing thing that's continued and it's, it's come to this. And now he says you're to remove him from the church. And so you're to, to take them out. And when we talk about that, what we're talking about is removing from what we would say here. We talk about our church covenant. From a covenant relationship within the church. Covenant just means promise. We have a church covenant when you join the church. And what it is, is simply promises of what you're going to do for those in the, in the body with you. They're going to do for you and you're going to do for them. And it's you're going to pray for each other. And you're going to hold each other accountable. And you're going to meet together. And you're going to worship together. And you're going to seek to make much of Jesus in your life and in all ways. And so when you continually rebel against that, you're going against the very promise that we've made to each other. And so there comes a point where if it's continued, you no longer can be a part of that covenant, of that promise, because you've broken it. You're not walking in it. And so you can't have the rights and privileges of what it means to be in the church and a member. And so I want you to think about what that means. That does not mean if someone's claiming to be a Christian and then they keep walking in these things and you go through all these steps and you remove them from a member. It doesn't mean we blockade the door and we don't let them in. Right? If they want to come and sit and listen to God's word proclaim and, and hear praises, they're, they're allowed to come in and do that. But it's the way you treat them that's differently. And now this, this may sound kind of harsh and it may sound kind of hard. And we're going to get to why that's the case in just a second. But look at what Paul says in verse 11. He says, but now I'm writing uh, to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And so what Paul says is to, to impress upon the seriousness of sin within the church that you don't just go on acting like everything's OK. And so in this situation, if that's the case and you you go and you uh, confront your brother and you tell him and you walk through these steps and they keep rejecting, they keep rejecting, they keep rejecting. Paul says you have to remove from that relationship to a degree. And I want you to just think very practically why. If, if I go to a friend and I'm telling him these things and I'm saying those and I'm telling him how serious this is and you need to repent from the way, the way you're walking and they keep saying no and they keep saying no. And then I say, OK, well, let's just go grab something to eat. It's kind of like. Ah, it's not that big of a deal. And so Paul says, you don't do that. You need to impress upon how serious this is. And so he says, you don't associate in that way. And so it's a very hard passage to think about sometimes when we really get to that. So it's praying about this this week. I'm like, man, this is hard to hear. And it's not just there because look at what he says in verses four and five. Verses four, he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present. 
With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. And so we say, well, you you remove him from among you and you don't associate with him in this way. And then Paul says, and you deliver him to Satan. So the destruction of his flesh. Right. As if the first part wasn't hard enough, (laughs) then he comes along with this. Now you deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And so you start to go, what in the world is going on here? What is Paul saying? What's he getting at in this? And so there's a briefly a few things that are happening here that we need to at least address and think about together for a second. First of all, I think what we can safely say, and there's some debate on exactly what this means and how far this goes. Safely, I think we can say that when, when Paul says to remove him from the body and to, to hand him over to Satan, in, in a very real way, what he's talking about is, is God is, is designed for believers to walk in a in a community together, in a local church. We're, we're, we're to do that. It helps us in the way we walk to be accountable and to care for one another, one of those things. And when you take that and you remove that and you say, now you're going to walk on your own in a very real way, you're taking this person and saying, you're going out into the world and you no longer have that covering of the church and this fellowship. And so Satan's uh, influence is great in the world. And so in a very real way, you're saying, okay, you're out there on your own. And you're putting him out there and kind of saying, okay, now you're going to deal with this. And it says, so that, so deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. You go, wow, that's, that's tough. But I think that's part of it is removing it from the covering of the church. But what about destruction of the flesh? I think part of it is to allow the effects of his sin to have, to take effect on him. Right? I, I've heard uh, Larry McKenna with Jericho House say this probably 50 times in the last couple of years. Guy hasn't hit bottom yet. You just have to kind of put your hands off and let him go because he hasn't gotten there yet. And I think that's part of what Paul's hitting at. The destruction of the flesh is just kind of letting him go. If he's going to walk in his sin, you're just going to have to let him kind of learn. And so that's part of it. I think that's part of it. And I think we can safely say that's part of what Paul's talking about. Then the question is, could it mean more than that? When you look at all of Scripture and all the things we see in Scripture, could it mean more than that? And I think, yeah, it could. I'm not going to say it absolutely means this, but it could mean this from what we see elsewhere in Scripture. And so what we see in Scripture is that there are times in which God allows, he kind of takes his covering off and he allows Satan to sift certain people. That's a hard thing to hear. I realize that. When you read in Job, if you've ever read the book of Job, Job chapter 2, Satan comes to God and he says, what about Job? He says, the only reason Job loves you is because you've given him everything, God. And God says, okay, we'll take those things from Job. I'm going to give you permission. I'm going to allow you to go for a time and take some of these things from Job. And again, that's a hard thing to hear. You hear that and you go, whoa, what is going on? God allows that to happen. And what we would say is happening. And and when God allows that to happen, the reason, and as you read through the book of Job, you see this. That under God's sovereign control, he allows things to come into our lives to purify our hearts and to lead us to a fuller and greater dependence on him. And sometimes he allows it even in that way. Now, be careful in what we say. God never does evil, never wills evil, never does it. But he will remove sometimes and allow these things to happen. Although he is never the author of evil or the one responsible for it, he will allow him to come. And so God will allow these things to come in to bring us to a further reliance 
on him. And so we could say, well, is that what Paul means here? And I don't know for certain, but it could be. It very well could be the way he speaks here about with the power of our Lord Jesus to deliver him over to say it could be that could be exactly what he means. We see later on in first Corinthians, we'll get to this in, I don't know, six months, probably first Corinthians 11. Paul actually says there's some that are sick and are hurting and some have even died among you. And you know what the reason is? Because they're making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. And so what we see is Paul says, sometimes God allows those things to happen for a refining and a bringing to a fuller uh, reliance on him. And so we see that. And I know that sounds harsh. Or maybe you've read in Acts chapter five, the birth of the church and the church is starting to grow and starting to go out. And Ananias and Sapphira too come in and they bring their offering before God and they lay it down and they say, we just sold our land and this is all the money from it. And they're lying. They've kept some for themselves and they're trying to do it to puff themselves up and make themselves look good. And if you know that story, what happens is God strikes them both dead. Because they're in their sin and they're unrepentant and they're running headlong right into it. And you go, what in the world is going on when you look at all this? Man, that seems harsh. Paul saying, remove them and hand them over to Satan and allow these things to happen. You go, what is going on? And I want you to see this. This is so important that we see this. Why is it like this? Why would God allow these things to happen? And the reason is God sees sin as it is. He sees how very destructive it is in our lives and in the life of the church and in his body. And so he will do and allow these things to happen and to come in because it is that serious. It's what happens with Ananias and Sapphira. They drop dead because the church is at a baby steps and it's growing. And it is so important for God's glory and for his word to go out that he's willing to do that. And so what you see is the importance of of going to battle with sin in our lives. You hear it in Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. If your right hand causes you to sin or your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. These are Jesus' words. If your right hand causes you to sin, he says, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. And so what we get is God allows things to come in to purify us and bring us back and to show us. And he wants us to see the seriousness of sin. He sees how clearly, how destructive it can become in your life. And so I know it sounds hard and it seems pretty rough to hear that. But that's just showing you a glimpse of how serious sin is and its effects in our lives. And so God shows us that. Now, I know if you were here last week, maybe you hear this and you listen to this and you go, man, that seems like the opposite of everything he said last week. Right. If you were here, maybe you remember uh, if you were here and then maybe a few of you remember what was said last week. But when we when we talked about last week in chapter four, we were talking about being puffed up and looking down on other people and becoming real arrogant. And then Paul says this in chapter four, verse five. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes. He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. And Paul clearly says, well, don't judge before the time. And we were talking about not looking down on other people and not pretending to know the intentions of their hearts and all those things and judging. And then now you get Paul saying in chapter five, I've already pronounced my judgment in verse three or in verse 12. He says it is not those inside the church who are to judge. And you go, what? What's going on? 
He just said, well, there's a difference here. Chapter four, he was talking about judging other people's intentions, pretending to know what's going on in their hearts, taking the place of God and judging other people and looking down on them and all these things. And then here, what we get is something very different. It's clearly outward rebellion against what God has clearly said. There's a difference. And not only that, it's within the church that he's talking about. Someone who's saying I'm a Christian and then clearly walking in a way that says I'm not a Christian by their actions. And then that's where he talks about it and how he says it. And so what we see here is this picture of when there's this clear violation and it's by a brother that's walking in faith with you. It's got to be addressed. You wouldn't be loving if you didn't, if you just let it slide. And so we are to we are called to address those things. Now, I want to be careful, though, because there's part of this we can miss. When we talk about this, when we talk about coming before a brother and calling them out on these things and walking with them, it is, there is a difference, and Paul even tells us right here in 9 to 12, that there's a difference between someone who's claiming to be a Christian and someone who's not claiming to be a Christian. Right? He says right here, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But then he clarifies, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I'm writing for you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Right. And he's saying so when you're when your Christian brother is walking in sin and doing those things, you have to tell him and you have to take these steps and you remove them from the body. He says, but it's not the same for someone that's not a believer. Why is that? Right? If, if I've got a friend or a neighbor and they're, and they're walking and all these things and I know it and they're blatantly showing you and telling you and all these things and you say, what, what should you do as a Christian? They're not claiming to be a follower of Christ. They're not part of a local body. What should you do? I think you, you, you hold faithful to God's word and as a friend you tell them, you say, you know, I believe this, this, your life would go better. Human flourishing works better if you follow what God's law says. And they go, well, I don't really care what that says because I don't believe that's God's word. Then what? Are you to remove them from the body? No, they're not part of the body. They're not in the church. So what do you do? Do you not associate with them? You go, oh, that guy's terrible. He's messed up. Well, tough. No. You love them. You love them in the way that Christ loved you. Yet while you were sinners, Christ died for you. And so you walk with them and you continue to ask questions and you continue to love them and you continue to walk along with them. They're not pretending to be a Christian. You see the difference there. The problem comes and that's why we get to our second question of why we do this with someone who's a brother. There's a big difference between someone who's claiming to represent Jesus in the world and someone who's not. Because if they are, that's why this is so important, because and I'll give you a couple of reasons why you see it in verses six, seven and eight. Why we have to do this, right? Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Well, what's he saying? He's saying when you start to look the other way on different sins and you allow them to come in and no one addresses it and everybody goes, oh, I don't really want to say anything and we'll just let that go. It leavens the whole. It begins to break down the witness of Christ's church. The way he's called us to go out and to be a light 
in the world. And if we look just like the world and we don't address any of those things, then we're going against the very mission that God's given us. Right. First, Peter, Peter says it this way, that that we are now a royal nation and, and we're a new priesthood and all these things. And then he says, and we're called out so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of the darkness. And so we're to go out and make disciples and make much of Jesus and point people to Jesus and say, look at what he's done. And he's changing me and all these things. And we can't do that if we look just like the rest of the world. And so when we talk about why do we have to do this, it goes against the very grain of what we are to be as a body. It goes against our mission as a church. If we look just like the world, you can't proclaim his excellencies because it doesn't look any different. And so it's so important that we look at it and we see it that way. We're opposing what we're to be as a church if we don't address it. And so that's the first reason why we would say we absolutely have to address these things. But there's a couple other reasons, too. You remove the person, you go and you address it and you talk to them and you take these steps. And if if need be, if there's continue in that sin, you remove them from the body. And, And the reason why is that they see the seriousness of their sin. That they see how dire this is. That they are in real danger if they're just going to walk in their sin and not care. And I'm just going to keep going this way. You know what the Bible says is evidence of your salvation and hear me, not that this saves you, but that you've understood what Christ has done for you and he saved you by what he does. What is the evidence that you understand and believe that the Bible says the evidence is a changed life. Jesus says it in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or in John eight, he says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. It's all throughout scripture. That when you get what Christ has done for you, your life will look differently. That's the proof that you've put your faith in Jesus. Paul even says it here in verses 19 and 20. He says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord's will, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Anybody can walk around and say, hey, yeah, I'm with you. I'm a Christian. I go to church. But their life is going to bear out if they really understand who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And so when we think about the importance of addressing these things, not only is it for the witness of the church, but it's also for that person's very soul that they would understand what they're doing. Because a life that doesn't have any marks of loving Jesus is probably because they don't love Jesus. That's a scary, scary place to be. And so you don't let these things just slide. You go and you address it to show the seriousness of sin. And so we would say it's for the witness of the church. It's for that person individually and where they are. But also it's so that we see so clearly our need for a savior. And I realize as I'm saying all this and I'm talking about what it looks like and what your life should look like. It's it's a lot of things that sound like works. And it's easy to slip into this thinking, well, I become a Christian and Jesus forgives me of all my past and all my mistakes. And he kind of wipes me clean. And now from here on out, I got to be perfect. Now I've got to earn it the rest of the way. We can easily slip into that type of thinking because we're sinful and our hearts deceive us. And we want to make it all about what we do. And we start to slide into that. 
But that's that's not what we're saying. You are saved completely and totally and wholly by what Jesus does for you, not what you do for him. It's by faith alone that you've been saved. And the reason that that is the case is because God requires perfection. And none of us are perfect. None of us could do it ever. And so he has to do it for us. He has to take our place and and, and make us clean and become the sacrifice for us. And that's what Paul says about him being our our, our lamb and our, our Passover lamb. And he does this. But when we get that, when we start to see that and saved by what Jesus has done for us, it should radically and profoundly change us. Martin Luther, the great reformer, monk in the in the in Germany in the 1500s, says this and he says it so perfectly. You are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. You are saved by what Christ does for you. But when that happens and you see that and you have true gospel belief in what Christ has done for you, it leads to a changed life. And if there's absolutely no change, then that's a scary place to be. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're walking with someone and you see that, that needs to be addressed. Do you understand what we're talking about? Paul says it so beautifully here. In verses 6, 7, and 8, when he talks about the lump being taken out and you take out the leaven and you don't have it anymore. You know, when they celebrated Passover, right, each year they would replay it and they would, they would sacrifice the lamb and they'd go through all the steps. And, and part of their celebration was they were supposed to clean out all the yeast, all the leaven from their, from their kitchen for a week, right? And so Paul uses that as an example and he, he applies that to like sin. He says, just like before Passover, before Jesus was sacrificed for us, you had this leaven, the sin. He says, now you clean it out and you clean it out. The leaven of sin is put out permanently because of what Christ has done for you, because Christ is now our Passover lamb. It's not just something we do every now and then and we clean it out and we, oh, I should go to church and I'll act good today. He says, no, 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 your whole life from this point forward, when you come to faith and see what Jesus has done for you, should, should completely change. That you should never make peace with sin again. It should never go back. You should fight it and confess it and flee it and ask people to hold you accountable and to help you. You don't just go, well, it's all right. We'll let that slide. And if you do, and if you continually do, the danger is that you don't know Jesus. And the reason I say that, why? Why do you hate sin and you're not going back there? And the reason is so clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Or in 2 Peter, it says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The reason you hate sin is your sin killed Jesus. Do you get that? You don't buddy up to the thing that killed your savior. You go, oh, well, you saved me. That's great. You took my sins. Why you're up there on the cross? Let me throw a few more on. You see that? We go to war with our sin. We take it so seriously. And the reason we take it so seriously, what we're hoping comes out of this, and this takes us to the end. What we're hoping to see happen is two things. One, the person that you address it and you say it, your prayer and your hope is not to say, oh, look at how bad you are. It's that they would repent. 
that they would be led to see their need of a savior and what Jesus has done for them, that it would show them so clearly I am broken. I desperately need a savior that can do what I can't do for me because I am lost without him. And when that happens, when that happens for all of us, when we start to see our sin that way, what happens is you see more clearly what Christ has done for you and he becomes all the more beautiful and he becomes glorified that much. And we see it. We say, look at what he's done for me. Look at what he's taken. Look at what he's restored me to. He's given me this relationship with God. And then we proclaim it. Oh, I was so lost. I was so messed up. And it's only by what he's done for me that I ever start to change. And so when we read this passage and we see these things that are hard to take and removing people and handing them over to Satan and doing all these things that he's talking about, it makes perfect sense when you see what Christ has done for you. When you start to see your sin for what it is. When you see what Jesus did for you and how he dealt with it. And so my prayer is that we see afresh today, 1 Corinthians 5. We see our mission and our our picture and the way we're moving as a church that why these things are so, so very important. That's for God's glory. It's that Jesus would be lifted up. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you for passages even like this one in 1 Corinthians 5. We thank you for verses 5 and 6. And when we, when we read those things and we, we struggle, but then as we, we work through them and we see your word and the way it uh, reveals to us the beauty and majesty of who you are and what you've done for us, we thank you for that. We pray today that as we leave, that we would leave with a renewed sense of just love for what you've done for us. That there would be an excitement to walk together. That there would be an excitement to put to death sin in our own bodies today. That we would be so taken with who you are and what you've done for us that we would leave no room for that. I thank you, thank you for all you've done for us. We pray it in your precious and holy name. Amen.